This is part two of our two-part series with author Sean McPhee. Thank you for listening. And now you can rent, you know, special operations teams. You can rent MI-24 attack helicopter squadrons. It's amazing what you can find in the market. It's not covered in American media, but it's amazing what's going on out there. And we're seeing mercenaries all over the place, and from Ukraine to Syria to Yemen to Nigeria to Venezuela, they are crawling around the world, and they are very proficient, and they're good. They're good at what they do. And it also includes civil affairs. Hi, I'm Doug Hurst, CEO of Third Order Effects, the premier choice for governance and cultural advising. 3OE was created to fill the need for improved governance advising for use by the Departments of Defense and State, USAID, foreign governments, and the private sector. Contact us at thirdorderfects.com. Hi, and welcome to the 1CA Podcast. My name is John McElligot, your host for today's episode. We're joined by Dr. Sean McFate. He is an author, novelist, and foreign policy expert. He is a professor of strategy at the National Defense University and Georgetown University School of Foreign Service in Washington, D.C. He's also an advisor to Oxford University's Center for Technology and Global Affairs. A specialist in national security strategy, Dr. McFate was a think tank scholar at the Rand Corporation, Atlantic Council, Bipartisan Policy Center, and New America Foundation. Recently, he was a visiting scholar at Oxford University's Changing Character of War program, where he conducted research on future war. His career began as a paratrooper and officer in the U.S. Army's storied 82nd Airborne Division, where he served under Stan McChrystal and David Petraeus, and graduated from elite training programs such as Jungle Warfare School in Panama, and he was also a jumpmaster. Dr. McFate then became a private military contractor. Among his many experiences, he dealt with warlords, raised armies for U.S. interest, rode with armed groups in the Sahara, conducted strategic recon for oil companies, transacted arms deals in Eastern Europe, and helped prevent an impending genocide in the Rwanda region. In the world of international business, he was a vice president at TD International, a boutique political risk consulting firm. He was also a manager at DynCorp International, a consultant at Bearing Point, and an associate for Booz Allen Hamilton. His nonfiction books include The New Rules of War, Victory in the Age of Durable Disorder, which we're going to discuss today, that was published by William Morrow, and The Modern Mercenary, Private Armies and What They Mean for World Order, which was published by Oxford University Press. His fiction books include Shadow War and Deep Black, both published by William Morrow. A coveted speaker, Dr. McFate has also written for and appeared on numerous media outlets. He has authored eight book chapters and edited academic volumes, and published a monograph for the U.S. Army War College on how to raise foreign armies. He holds a B.A. from Brown University, a master's in public policy from Harvard Kennedy School of Government and a PhD in international relations from LSE, the London School of Economics and Political Science. He lives in Washington, D.C. For more information about Dr. McFate, visit his website, which is seanmcfate.com. Now, you talk about uh, gray matter is superior to silicon, and I want to talk about ways that we could really invest in training people and just instead of just investing in hardware, you know, do both, but... Americans are typically not inclined to speak foreign languages because most Americans don't have to. You know, we have, uh, we're bordered in the north by Canada, it's English speaking, and in the south, in Mexico, and Spanish speaking. There's a growing population of America, of the United States, that speaks Spanish. And we do have migrants who speak foreign languages, and some of them join the military. What are the requirements you see in future war of training our military personnel for the future warfare that you've envisioned? I think a foreign legion would add a lot to our 
capability of doing cultural and other types of warfare, right? We, it's not just, you know, well, first of all, American culture generally fetishizes technology. We love gee whiz technology. And the truth is, is that gee whiz technology does not win wars. It's the humans behind that technology that wins wars. And we spend, I think, too much of our time investing in technological solutions to tactical problems and not enough time on, on training our minds, our thinking about, you know, how do we think out of this problem? And I think, you know, look at China, that's what they're doing. I mean, they are strategically, they're using strategic cunning to win places like the South China Sea and not, you know, blunt force. Yeah. And at the tactical level, I mean, at the tactical level, we're actually quite good at this, at the, at soft, in my opinion, but um, we need to become better. Uh, and of course, you know, the, the Americans don't have to be multicultural because, again, as I was saying, we are the world's hegemon. We, we, we live in a, in a country that's bordered by English speakers. Everybody speaks English, you know, mostly, largely in part of the last 70 years of dominance. Um, you know, the business language of the world is English. But I think we can do better in terms of training and education. And, you know, think about this. Education, I think liberal arts is a great education for strategic thinking. Why do I say that? Because the liberal arts, when you read Dostoevsky's, you know, Brothers Karamazov, for example, you're not really reading about late 19th century Russian society. I mean, you kind of are, but you're learning to think about ambiguity. That's what good critical thinking is. That's what good liberal arts is, is thinking about ambiguity. And that's what, if you think about national, like war problems, national security issues, it's all about wicked problems and ambiguity. But what do we train at academies? We train, you know, engineering. Engineering is the wrong model of thinking for modern warfare. Um, so I think there's a lot of things that we can do that's not just languages, it's just education at large. But ultimately, we have to invest in people and not platforms. And do you see that as, for example, when someone raises their arm and volunteers to join one of the military services as being too late? You know, does the United States as a nation need to invest in uh, the liberal arts training or training that goes back to uh, what Orson Scott Card talked about in Ender's Game, starting when yeah. people in their childhood. Yeah, I, I love you know Orson Scott Card actually. Ender's Game, Ender's Game, Ender's Game is a great and interesting model for for identifying strategists because right now. How do we create a strategist in the United States of America? Well, we generally get lucky. We're not smart. So we get people like George Marshall, General Marshall, or we get people like Abraham Lincoln, who was a great strategic thinker. We don't really, we don't, as I said earlier at the beginning of the podcast, we don't really have, there's no civilian universities for strategic thought. War colleges are more abundant. Uh, and I think, what, you know, how old is an officer? How many years does an officer have before he gets a strategic education? Do you, do you know? Like uh, typically, I mean, it, you have to get to, I think, 05. So that's... Yeah, 05. Yeah. So you got 15 to 20 years in. Why are we waiting 15 to 20 years to teach our officers to think strategically? Why don't we do that when people are cadets and midshipmen? Why don't we do that at ANOC and BNAC? I don't know. Why do we think that only officers can think strategically? And why do we think that only people in uniform can think strategically? Let's have a program we, we invite, you know, we, we can recruit strategic thinkers from the civilian world. 
So I think we need to be a little bit more imaginative. And that's why I like Orson Scott Card, because in his book and I guess the movie, Ender's Game, um, they have a program where they identify strategic thinkers who are children and they raise them up as children. I'm not saying we should do that, but it's, it's a model that's kind of interesting to think about. Yeah. You also talk about in the book the, the balance of power between the executive branch and the legislative and where do you draw the line between the powers the president should have for waging war as the commander-in-chief, um, which has really grown in power over the last several decades, and the, the check and balance that Congress has had with declaring war you know, so yeah, the, well, and, and funding them, right? So they really have the, the power of the purse, but you know, where is that balance? Where should it be? That's an outstanding question. So this is a debate that's been raging since the founding of the Republic, right, where our founders distrusted standing militaries because they didn't want to have a military junta. And so it's, it's curious that in the Constitution, you read it, they say that, uh, that Congress is authorized to raise an army, but it has an AD, you know. This has always been a problem, and it's been a growing problem since the end of World War II. The last time our, our Congress declared war officially was World War II. So all the conflicts from Korea to Afghanistan, those are not technically official wars. Uh, or the Congress did not declare them official wars. This became a problem in the 1970s, uh, and the, you know, the War Powers Act was passed so to, to sort of constrain what some saw as an imperial presidency. Others defend it, say, look, we're a superpower now. You know, we have to have a, an executive who can, who can act with power rapidly. We can't send it to a committee, you know? And th those are the two camps. It's dangerous when, uh, you know, we all love the military. I love the military. I'm a vet, but I, you know, I teach at National Defense University in Washington. Uh, we have international students from around the world, and these are, these are people who are going to become generals in the, in, in, of their military someday. Some of them are kind of a little scared about the degree of, of sort of flag-waving and martial support in our country. Um, that are, they think that some, some people think that our civil and military relationship is kind of out of balance. Um, and it's not that the generals are pushing this. It's not that. It's actually civilians. If you think about the Warhawk civilians from Madeleine Albright, uh, you know, who's like, let's go to Bosnia, intervene there, and it's Samantha Power, to like, you know, Wolfowitz and the neocons. In some ways, it's, it's reverse of Sam Huntington's The Soldier in the State, where the soldiers were seen as the bloodthirsty generals, for example, Dr. Strangelove, and the civilians are restraining them, which is the Klaus-Gitzian approach. Now it's kind of flipped on its head. Now we have, like, bloodthirsty civilians, who I think are mostly chicken hawks, frankly, who want to go to war, and it's the military that's holding them back in a sort of a Jacksonian way. But I think we need to have a national discourse about, not just about war, but what is our relationship to war, and, and who's in charge, you know, is it, which branch of government is in charge. I see largely Congress, I guess, abdicated a great deal of power over the decades to the executive branch, and not just in the sphere of warfare, but in all sorts of areas. Yeah. And that's, again, it's not a Republican versus Democrat issue, it's, a, it's an American issue. Do you think that having so few Americans serve in uniform leads them to want to ask veterans to stand at every baseball game and be overly patriotic? Is that, if that's possible? But to defer so much to the military and say, well, you're amazing, let's, let's use you as a tool for whatever the political lines are. I do. I mean, I, I do. Look, I'm a vet, and I was in the military in the 90s where it was not cool to walk down into an airport wearing BDUs, right? Yeah. 
as older listeners will tell you about the 1970s and 80s, being a Vietnam vet was horrible. And I'm really happy to see American society hug and, and their military, as it, as it should be. Yeah, much better approach uh, than the Vietnam yeah, era. Yeah, you know, of course, sometimes some of the jingoism of thank you for your service in the airport, I mean, even vets kind of roll their eyes about this after times. But I do think that, you know, if you think about it, you know, less than 1% of our country serves in uniform. And we're asking our, our military to do things above and beyond the call of duty. And uh, we see, you know, you know, soldiers being, like, you know, 10 years ago, being deployed to Iraq and Afghanistan five times in a row, having to, you know, problems back at home. And, you know, it's just, it's just not, you know, I think if we had, a, you know, national service, it didn't have to be military national service, it could be civilian national service. I think Americans would be a lot more circumspect about foreign policy and listen to the debates a lot closer. Because right now, it's very easy for Americans to say, yeah, we're strong, we're USA, and like you go, you other people go and fight the war for us. I think if we all had skin in the game, Americans would pay a lot more attention to our policies and we'd make better decisions. After a break, we're going to return to our discussion with author Sean McFate. This episode is sponsored by Third Order Effects, the premier choice for governance and cultural advising. Third Order Effects maintains a private network of high-end consultants for advising at the most senior levels. Our people have a mix of military and civilian acquired skills and experience. Their time living and working overseas combined with their linguistic abilities make them the best qualified personnel to analyze other cultures and advise clients within the governance domain. We help clients eliminate the consequences of second and third order effects of poor planning and execution of the missions focused only on short-term outcomes. Apply to join our team or contact us about contracting opportunities. Visit us at thirdordereffects.com. Welcome back to the 1CA Podcast. I'm your host, John McElligot. Today, our guest is author Sean McFate. So your fourth rule that talks about hearts and minds do not matter. I, I was reading and interpreting as that the United States should get its hands dirty and really dirty with troops on the ground, possibly for a longer term. And my understanding is that American society generally abhors prolonged wars. There's little consistency across administrations supporting them, right? You talk about every four to eight years, the winds change and the strategy changes if we have that. So unless more Americans get involved in fighting the wars, do you ever see that value equation changing? Well, there's two questions you've asked there. So first of all, hearts and minds that matter. So rule, I have, this book has 10 new rules. It explains like why we're not winning wars. And to win wars, you've got to do, you've got to fight wars differently. Warfare has changed, you have to fight differently. One of the rules is hearts and minds don't matter. Now, what that means is the first four rules are things we have to stop doing. And we have this idea that in counterinsurgency that if, you know, if you, if you can give, you know, people, uh, you know, services, protection, uh, you know, healthcare, all these things, that they will then give you their allegiance to you. But that's not how populations work. Populations are not bribable. You, you know, China can't go to Detroit and say, hey, look, we'll give you a free food, free education, we'll build you a football stadium. But all you got to do is vote communist in the next you know, elect congressional election. People of Detroit would say, well, take all your stuff, but we ain't voting commie. 
And that's exactly what populations in Iraq and Afghanistan did. Uh, coin failed for a lot of reasons, but essentially it failed as it was a bad idea. Uh, and I, so rule number four is actually about if you do want to do coin, this is what it looks like. It's amoral, it's bloody, and it takes a long time. Look at the Roman Judea War of 68. Look at how we settled the West in the 19th century. That's what coin looks like. So that's kind of what, what that's about. But I do think that if we are going to, you know, war is going underground, war is going to shadows. If we need to, if we want to fight in modern war and win, we've got to go in the shadows too. That's what rule number nine is about, called shadow war. Uh, but there are problems with that because as we learned in the 1970s with the church commission, that secrets and democracy are not compatible. So if war is getting more secretive and more sneaky, and we want to, we have to wage it, how do we wage it in a way that we don't lose our democratic soul? I have a couple questions for you that relate to civil affairs and your rules about mercenaries and new world powers being supported by deep states, to me, indicate that there are different power structures and players that see professionals and people listening to this podcast for their work will have to track more closely and analyze to figure out what those impacts are on the operational environment of the OE. So how else would the rise of mercenaries or deep states impact the mission of civil affairs and what you know of civil affairs? Well, first of all, deep states. So deep states is um, is actually not the conspiracy theories of, of some. Uh, when they say deep state, people think of conspiracy. Uh, deep states do exist. Uh, they, there's been a li- academic literature on deep states for at least 20 or more years. What a deep state is, think of like the military-industrial complex that makes the U.S. buy weapons that it doesn't even want, doesn't even need, right? That's what a deep state is. It's like, think of like institutions sort of like uh, fighting for themselves uh, rather than, you know, a conspiracy of individuals. A deep state is like institutions. Yeah, so it could be career um, civil we, servants we, or it could be people in industry. Yeah, and, and they're not malicious people. It's just they're fighting for their... For you know, you've, you've heard this term like where you, you know where you stand is where you sit, or it's called Miles Law. That's kind of what it is. And we could talk more about what a deep state is, but a deep state is they do exist, but it's not like the conspiracy theory that is sometimes portrayed. And it doesn't mean I'm pro or con Trump, by the way, or Bannon or anybody else. Um, uh, there's a literature on deep states uh, that predates them. So basically, you know, civil affairs. I mean, we're getting to a point now where you know mercenaries. Uh, it's the second oldest profession in the world, and there's a reason for that. It's because you know renting is cheaper than owning. So renting force is cheaper than owning it. And now we're seeing, for different reasons, you know, mercenaries disappeared for about 150 years, from 1850 to about 2000. They existed, but always underground in the shadows. They're now resurrecting, and now you can rent, you know, special operations teams. You can rent MI-24 attack helicopter squadrons. It's amazing what you can find in the market. It's not covered in American media, but it's amazing what's going on out there. And we're seeing mercenaries all over the place, and from Ukraine to Syria to Yemen to Nigeria to Venezuela, they are crawling around the world, and they are very proficient and they're good. They're good at what they do, and it also includes civil affairs. And it's not just, and civil doesn't mean it's, it's, I'm not saying, you know, there, I'm sure there are mercenary civil affairs people out there, but it, it comes in different guises. You have extractive industry oil companies who hire civil affairs like teams to go out and do things. Because, you know, extractive industries like oil and mining, they, they have no choice. They have to go where the asset is. And if that asset is in the middle of West Africa, I guess where they're going to be sitting for 40 years. 
So they, they engage in all these things. And there's the privatization of civil affairs, the privatization of warfare at large. And that changes war profoundly and it changes power structures in the world profoundly. Because suddenly now, you know, if anybody who's super rich can, you know, afford the means of war, then the super rich can become superpowers. And we're yeah. kind of going into that world right now, where the global one point, you know, point one percent, they can have an army if they want. Right. And I think they will. And it's not just oligarchs and you know, Fortune 500 and, you know, or rich people. It's also things like mega churches. I mean, if there was a, a you know, ISIS 2.0 and they started to crucify men and, and, and sell women and girl children off in sex slave markets again, I can see a mega church with a $90 million annual contract hire mercenaries to do a humanitarian intervention to save Christians, right? right? Why is that so hard to imagine? But we're in a world where that can be done today. Yeah. You portray influence as playing a large role in shadow wars, and civil affairs forces are in that mix. So how should CA forces be rethinking their ways to leverage local populations, multinational corporations, criminal organizations, and others to achieve those military end states? I think it's worth seeing how, you know, who is doing this well? Look at what Russia is doing. Look at, uh, Russia is a great example. Uh, and they actually have this way of warfare called Maskaroska, which I could be portraying the Russian pronunciation, but it means camouflage. It's strategic camouflage. And most of this stuff is going on at the strategic level of war. But how do you change local minds? How do you – and so CA has done that in the past. I would, I would love to see CA get a lot more creative. I'd also love to see CA get uh, – you know, we're a country that invented Madison Avenue in Hollywood. Why can't we get some help there? I mean, I know during the past and, like, after 9-11, we did go out to, you know, we did those places and give us your ideas, but I don't think they had the right people going out there. We had, like, political appointees and very high-level people going out to Hollywood saying, tell me what you know. What we need, we need people who have experience in the ground, like CA folks going out and telling Hollywood or telling Mass and Avenue, like, how would you, you know, you, you just did, like, a multi, you know, $100 million campaign to sell brands or something, you know, Speakers, how would you take that idea, and how would you help me in places like Yemen? That's what we need. We need to have a connection between the CA community itself, the people on the ground who who know how this is done, rather than you know somebody going out there because their their father gave a lot of money to the campaign and they're they're like mucky muck a political pointy, and they connect directly and they can help craft strategic influence campaigns because we are very the private sector in our country is very good at strategic influence campaigns we call them commercials yeah I buy um, stuff all the time that's the connection we need so less right now the connection is being done by the completely the wrong people on the USG end Dr. McFade, I have a final question for you here about it relates to civil affairs and authorities. Um, so we have conventional or what we call conventional and we call unconventional soft CA what authorities do you think need to change to allow CA forces to engage with these this wider range of power players that you see in Shadow Wars? Our bureaucratic structure is modeled on a World War II, a post-World War II era, which made sense in 1962. It doesn't make sense in 2019, 2020. Now, it would take an act of God to change our authorities, right? I mean, we can barely get basic legislation through our Congress as it is, right? Yeah. Uh, we're not going to see a sort of Goldwater Nichols II anytime soon. Um, but basically, I think we need to have latitude. There's a couple things that need to change. It's not just authority. It's also strategic culture. So our strategic culture tends to be very closeted and very World War II. 
However, the types of warfare that we're seeing now, it's very Sunzuian, which is all about deception, uh, and it's very post-Westphalian, post-World War II. And the, the weapon systems, if you will, that matter most are not M1 Abrams, it's things uh, in the CA community, in the soft community, that's what works. And I'm not saying that we can, you know, not, we don't need tanks anymore. I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that we need to have creative latitude to expand and do things that need to be done. And usually the way this happens historically in military history is that there's a war. All the, the, the doctrine and training we, you know, we discover early doesn't work and we have to improvise. We have to innovate or die. And usually a lot of blood is spilled in the process. And what the new rules of war is trying to do, not just for CA but at large, is let's try to do this before we spill a lot of blood. Because some countries like France spill a lot of blood and they still don't learn if you look at World War I. So, you know, authorities need to expand. We need to have more, you know, sort of like Title 50 authorities, in my opinion. That's a very controversial statement. But our adversaries are doing just that. And we're putting strategic constraints around ourselves. And we can say, well, that's unacceptable to the American people, but the American people don't serve. <laughs> so, right. And I think what's informing their, their, their opinions about what is acceptable and not acceptable are not the voices of, say, a World War II generation. Who are the pundits, right? I mean, who, what is their background? Well, you made me think of a, a final question, the real final question now, and this is something that's always asked of uh, senior NCOs and officers when they're speaking with soldiers or, or Marines or what, who not. That is, I guess for the CA professionals listening to this, before the military tells them that there's some new professional military education or training they should go to, what should CA people do on their own to prepare themselves for future war? listening to a great interview with Dr. Sean McFate. He is an author, novelist, and foreign policy expert, professor at strategy at the National Defense University and Georgetown University School of Foreign Service in Washington, D.C. He is the author of The New Rules of War, Victory in the Age of Durable Disorder, which was published by William Morrow. Go out and get a copy. Find out what else he has published at seanmcfate.com. Dr. Sean McFate, thank you very much for being on the One Day Podcast. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. 
Until then, be safe and secure the victory.